Hello and welcome to Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet, a podcast about material, the making instinct and a craftful life. I am Meg and I'm a curious maker who podcasts from London in the UK. First of all, apologies that this podcast is a week later than normal. I attended the Leeds Wolf Festival as planned. It was a super day out, the weather was glorious and the setting was perfect. The festival was held in an old mill that now houses an industrial museum and it's set on the canal that runs from Leeds in Yorkshire to Liverpool on the northwest coast of England. As expected, it was a day full of familiar faces and an opportunity to make some new friends. There was lots of knitting, wool and lively chatter. It was one of those soul-nurturing days, but it was also a very long day trip and unfortunately it triggered a pain flare-up. These flare-ups not only impact on my ability to make, they also mean it's extremely painful to work the mouse, so recording and editing becomes quite difficult. Anyway, I'd like to thank all returning listeners for bearing with me and coming back for more, and welcome all new listeners who are tuning in for the first time. I would also like to thank everybody who contacted me after last episode to share their experiences of figuring out which sewing patterns work for them. There are lots of upbeat stories and beautiful photos on the internet of successful sewing projects, so for me it's rather reassuring to know that I'm not the only one who is working out through a process of trial and sometimes disastrous error what patterns work best for me. There are a couple of administrative things first before we get into the body of the podcast. You can find me in various places on the internet. I am Mrs M Curiosity Cabinet with underscores between each word on Instagram, and Meg, aka Mrs. M, with hyphens between each word on Ravelry. I'll put all of that in the show notes, which you can find on my blog at www.mrsmscuriositycabinet.com. Secondly, I have set up a Ravelry group for the podcast, which you are very welcome to join and use as a space to discuss topics raised in this podcast, or share ideas, dilemmas, creative approaches, etc., The group is called Mrs M's Curiosity Cabinet and you can find it by searching in the Groups tab on Ravelry, but I will also link it in the show notes. So what do I have in store today? There will be an update on my sock experiment, which will lead me into talking about one of the aspects of my wool pantry in more detail. I will also be sharing some dyeing experiments, including some examples of the alchemy of natural dyeing. And finally, as my interest in local and breed-specific wool is very much an extension of my love of local and seasonal food, I'd like to invite you into what I affectionately call my kitchen garden to share some lesser-known and old varieties of vegetables and herbs. So I hope you're comfortable, have a making project to hand and maybe a favourite beverage or tipple, and let's get started. last time I am now working on experimental sock pair number two. For this pair I'm using a 100% pole dorset lambswool from Northern Yarn. According to the fleece and fibre source book, pole dorset is a distinct breed from dorset horn or dorset down but it shares many of the down-like qualities. For example in the hand it has a crisp, bouncy, almost sponge-like feel and when knitted up it feels very much like a finer version of the strong spongy socks I used to wear in welly boots as a child. This yarn is a rich undyed cream colour, think buttermilk rather than clotted cream. 
It's wool and spun and it comes in 100 gram skeins which gives you 388 meters or approximately 425 yards. Therefore it's slightly thicker than a commercial sock yarn. As this wool is a single breed single farm wool it's produced on a small scale so it's a bit more expensive than a commercial sock wool at 11 pounds per 100 grams rather than say 7 or 8 pounds. So which pattern am I using? This was the tricky part. I thought I would knit myself some socks that would be suitable for the warmer months, so short lacy ones. And I first cast on Falange by Claire Devine from her Sock Anatomy book. This pattern uses a very simple open lace design and reminds me very much of the kind of socks I wore as a child in primary school during the summer months. Unfortunately, it didn't really work for the character of the yarn. The wool definitely calls for a more robust pattern, so I decided to try a design from Luli's new Simple Sock collection. This is an ebook with four practical sock designs, one plain and three fun variations thereof. I cast on Socks with Holes In, which is a wonderfully pragmatic name for a design, but totally in keeping with Luli's podcasting style. She's a very down-to-earth, no-nonsense type of person who calls a spade a spade. The socks with holes in pattern is a wonderful, rather playful design and very, very simple to knit. However, I struggled to get the tension right with my yarn and this particular stitch pattern. The conventional wisdom on tension is that you go up or down a needle size to try to get the tension that the pattern requires. However, as most of us know, that is only part of the story. Once you achieve the pattern tension, you have to actually like the character of the fabric that it creates and it has to be appropriate for the job. With the pole dorset, I needed a two and a half millimeter needle, which is I think a US one and a half if that exists, in order to get the pattern tension. But that left me with a fabric that was far too loose to have any durability. To achieve a fabric that would actually work for socks, I had to go down a couple of needle sizes to a two millimeter or US zero needle. This however resulted in socks that would be so tiny that I'd never get them on my feet. As I couldn't get the right tension and a satisfactory based on changing my needle sizes, I needed to look at modifying the pattern based on my actual tension. This is totally doable as long as any changes are ultimately a multiple of the stitch count for the relevant pattern. Now with shawls and sweaters this is relatively easy, but with socks there is a further complication. We have to work with the mathematics that underpin the engineering of a sock. Socks are such a mundane item that we rarely stop to think about them, but they're actually a fabulous piece of engineering. Not only are we creating a 3D item out of string, we are changing directions midway and factoring in how to reinforce certain stress points. I often think that when we are knitting socks, we are using woolen stitches much in the same way that a welder might use steel and welding points, or a widget maker would use liquid polymer and extrusion moulds. Just like those makers, we sock knitters are using ratios and increase rates to achieve the desired shape. In order to reconcile tension, fabric characteristic, stitch count requirements, my foot size and yarn, I finally settled on Luli's ankle socks with ventilation, another wonderfully pragmatically named pattern. The stitch count was spot on for me with this yarn and this pattern when I used a 2.25mm needle or a US 1. 
I made a few changes though. To start with, I worked them bottom up rather than top down. And once I got halfway through the gusset increases, I realized that as with my mohair Manx socks, the recommended number of increases would produce a sock that would be too large for me. At this point, I could have ripped back and started the gusset increases lower down the foot, but that would have produced a rather baggy sock below the instep, and as I mentioned on a previous occasion, I hate baggy socks. So instead, I decided to knit fewer gusset increase rows, but made a couple of changes to achieve a comfortable stitch count across the top of the instep. The gusset row increases are usually made in pairs of rows, with the increases worked in one row and a rest row between the next one. I however decided to make increases in each row at the top of the instep, so effectively I was increasing at a faster rate. Secondly, when I got round to lashing the heel flap to the sock with the decrease rows, I added a couple of stitches between the instep and the heel section by knitting into the yarn between those two. I know that some knitters think this sounds like a lot of hard work for a pair of socks, but as I experienced similar row tension issues with both my sets of experimental socks so far, I thought it was worth mentioning. Most sock patterns seem to be designed for what is considered a typical modern day sock yarn, i.e. a highly spun yarn that is at the finer end of four ply or fingering weight. So if anyone is planning on knitting socks with yarns that are not considered conventional sock yarn, you too may have to modify the gusset and heel shaping slightly to make it work for your rotation. Although it has taken me some time to make this yarn work for a sock pattern, I've actually enjoyed the process quite a lot. I'm not the most prolific sock knitter, but one of the things that I most enjoy about sock knitting is the engineering. With this pair of socks, I found it really gratifying to work on a project that forces me to think through the interaction between the material and structure in detail, rather than just set my brain to default and knit away. And I know that probably makes me sound really weird. At the Leeds Wool Festival, I had some conversations with a number of people about which yarns I planned on using in future for my experiment. So far, I think I will include the following yarns in my sock experiment. A mohair Wensleydale blend from Whistlebear Yarns, a Shetland Wensleydale blend from the Knitting Goddess, and some local BFL with a strand of added mohair in the heels and toes. I also plan to hand spin some sock yarns so that I can try to combine my knowledge of breed specific characteristics and yarn structure to try and achieve a yarn that works well for socks. The keen listeners amongst you will have realised that all these yarns are from British breeds, farms and suppliers, which brings me nicely on to another aspect I would like to discuss, the bioregional nature of my wool supplies. Last episode I mentioned the term wool pantry. It's a phrase that I like to use when talking about my wool supplies because for me there are many analogies between my love and attitudes to wool and my interests in food from the agricultural and environmental issues to the social and psychological factors. I will probably unpack this term in more detail in future episodes but one of the aspects I wanted to talk about today is the bioregional nature of my wool pantry. 
One of the aspects that um, characterises both my clothes making and my cooking is that I aim to source as many materials and ingredients as possible from a region local to me. I'm of course very realistic that I can't meet all of my needs from resources in the south of England or the British Isles or even Western or Northern Europe. There will always be exotics and that is totally fine, like cotton in my wardrobe or tea or rice in my pantry. But where I can, I like to work with fabulous local fibre or excellent local ingredients. In fact, I'm aiming for at least two-thirds of my food and wardrobe to be sourced locally within the next couple of years. This is an entirely personal choice. I see it as one of the ways in which I can try to navigate a complex web of environmental and ethical dilemmas. It is by no means the only way, but it certainly helps keep me focused and encourages me to question and research, and it also strongly directs my creativity. Likewise, my two-thirds objective is a general guideline. I'm not going to beat myself up about not necessarily meeting it, but it does give me something against which to measure progress and to assess challenges. It is, of course, not without its own internal dilemmas. For example, how do I feel about using wool from the Falkland Islands, which are technically British but come from miles away? Or how do I feel about using UK-reared alpaca yarn when socially it may be more appropriate to support alpaca growers in South America. And of course a bioregion means different things depending on whether we are talking about wool, linen, grains, vegetables, fruit, etc. Why do I aim to source as much of my wardrobe as locally as possible? Well, just as I struggle with food miles, I don't see the sense in shipping wool halfway around the world and often multiple times due to the processing. This seems like an incredible waste of energy, particularly when there is such an abundance of good wool locally. The energy issue is not just linked to freighting wool from one continent to another. It is also linked to the more general attitude I have to appropriate use of resources. Many local wool breeds have developed over time to be well suited to their geography and climate. For example, they might be hardy enough to survive in remote areas and or on land that is ill-suited to other forms of agriculture. Just think of Shetland sheep out on islands in the Far North Sea or South Down sheep on the wind-battered South Downs of Sussex and Hampshire. Similarly, many breeds will have developed resistance to local pests or their digestive system will have adapted to local forage. For example, the North Ronaldsea sheep and the original Romney Marsh have systems that thrive on local seaweed or on the marshland vegetation on the south coast. Whether we are talking about vegetables or sheep, from an energy, water, land usage and nutrient perspective, I think it makes much more sense to work with varieties and breeds that have developed to thrive in certain conditions, rather than bring in other breeds or worse still, try to replicate conditions artificially. Another reason why I choose to source my wool locally is that I like to invest in local economies and communities. Just as with local food, by investing in local wool, I am investing in the local economy, in skills, in know-how, and in the supply chain that such local jobs create. We are really fortunate that there is still some scouring and spinning capacity in this country. 
not as much as there used to be, but certainly more than in places like France or Central Europe or Australia, which have lost their production capacity and with it the skills and know-how to China, South Africa and South America. Finally, from an environmental and ethical perspective, it's much easier to assess the credentials of a company or product if it is sourced locally. Short supply chains are just often more transparent than ones that span countries and continents. For these reasons, I aim to source all the wool I use in my knitting from the British Isles. I'm also making every effort to ensure that when using woolen fabric in sewing, I'm sourcing it from companies that use wool grown and spun in the British Isles too. Because of the times we are living in, I do feel I should stress that my own preference to sourcing as much locally as possible, be it food or wool, has absolutely nothing to do with the increasing nationalist sentiments we're seeing or the protectionism that is appearing in various countries, and it has everything to do with environmental, social and ethical considerations. Neither does it mean that I only care about what happens in my backyard. Rather, it frees up time and headspace so I can focus my mind and research what I can feasibly do to add value and make responsible decisions about those products and materials that I cannot source locally, like cotton, tea, rice. For those issues, I might support farmers further afield who grow cotton organically, or I might source cotton fabric from a cooperatively owned mill in Nepal or India or Bangladesh. Another option is to source materials from a fair trade producer, or there is even the possibility of supporting small-scale artisans through microfinance initiatives. This is quite an interesting one because it not only helps artisans in other countries to develop their own business, but in doing so it allows them to create the local supply chains that I value so much closer to home. I should also mention that my interest in local wool does not mean that I'm not interested in or curious about wool breeds and small producers further afield. And while I happily encourage anybody to try British wools, my first advice would always be to check out what woolly gems are available local to you. Who are the local fibre heroes in your country or region and can you champion them? Although I may never use Hog Island wool or yarns from Green Mountain Spinnery, I love hearing fibre folk like Sarah of Fibre Trek, Maria of Ninja Chickens, Rachel of Woolen Spinning, and of course Jenny and Devon, aka Tiny Paper Foxes, and Brian and Heath, highlighting the wonderful characteristics of their local wools and championing their local producers. This celebrating of local walls is a fantastic way of generating a culture of interest in and support for local producers and regional materials, and it's something that I absolutely like to encourage. I was therefore delighted when Lynn from Norway, who is Yarn Dream on Ravelry, and I'll try to get this right, Brigerhus Fiber Stewart on Instagram contacted me after I waxed lyrical about my black and mohair blend socks. She explained to me that she was very eager to try this yarn too, but that it prompted her to check whether there was anything similar available in Norway as well. In doing so, she discovered a small independently owned mill called Telespin. 
This was set up nearly 10 years ago when a local mohair goat owner decided that there must be alternatives to sending his mohair to Denmark or even South Africa to be spun. And he got together with some other local mohair breeders to create a local spinning facility. I'll include details of this mill in the show notes as listeners based in Scandinavia may want to support this mill as a local resource. And I would absolutely encourage anybody listening to share details of their local breeds or local farms and mills via the Ravelry group or on Instagram. If you are in search of local to you walls and mills, I would encourage you to take a look at the Handmaiden Woolen group on Ravelry. There's a thread in this group where Jenny and Devon crowdsourced ideas about local producers of quite natural rustic materials. I'll include a link to that thread in the show notes for convenience. In recent weeks, I've been doing quite a bit of dyeing to give my hands a break from the knitting. I have been experimenting with dyeing over the last 18 months. It's mostly been natural dyes and predominantly on wool, although I would always throw a few scraps of cotton into the dye bath just to see how they turned out and see how wash and light fast they are. That said, I felt it was now time to move on to a more focused and systematic study of dyeing cotton. Why this shift? As I mentioned earlier, I'm aiming to source at least two-thirds of the materials in my wardrobe from a local to me bioregion. In practice, this means using British wool for knits and winter skirts and coats and linen from Ireland or other traditional European flax-growing countries like Belgium and the Baltic States for summer wear. That said, I know that I'll never be able to remove cotton entirely from my wardrobe, so the aim is to favour organically grown cotton for items like underwear or t-shirts. As I'm quite a new sewer, I am working up to this steadily, For now, I'm allowing myself to use non-organic cotton from remainder merchants or second-hand shops when I'm making the first twirl of a pattern, but then moving on to organic cotton for the wearable twirls and any subsequent iterations. Organic cotton has certainly come a long way in the last 10 and even 5 years in terms of availability and range. That said, the organic cotton market is still heavily concentrated on the quilting cottons and to a lesser extent printed jerseys. And whilst the range of colours and prints is improving, the palette is still dominated by pastels or strong primary colours. And the majority of the prints are probably what I would call cute or cartoon-like or quite whimsical. Now, I completely understand why manufacturers have gone down this route. If fun quilts and cute dresses are the gateway drug to get people to use more organic cotton, I'm all for it. But personally speaking, I look awful in most of the palette available, and given my personality, I would look ridiculous in many of the prints available. And then there is also the general lack of fabrics like cotton lawn, corduroy and velvet in organic cotton. This means I have two options. I could either go into a right old strop about the lack of availability and give up, or I can get creative and find ways to add colour and or patterns to undyed organic cotton. Being me, I've gone for the second option. I am being as open-minded as possible about the materials and techniques I might use. 
I'm also accepting that whatever techniques I come up with, they will not be environmentally neutral, as there is no such thing. All dyeing has environmental impacts, from the dye material we use, to how water-intensive the process is, and how we deal with the waste. One of the reasons why I wish producers of GOTS-certified cotton would offer a wider range of colours is because the global organic textile standards cover more than just the organic growing practices. They require compliance with minimum labour standards at the different stages in the production process. And they also specify which types of dyes can be used and importantly, what minimum steps need to be taken to minimise adverse impacts on workers, people in wider society and the wider environment. When dyeing at home, I can obviously pick materials with care and be as conscientious as possible about my water usage and how I dispose of residues, but I will not be able to take all of the measures that a company can put in place. As I'm working on a much smaller scale and I am based in a city with a municipal drainage system, this is probably not so problematic, but it is something I should be aware of. So what have I been experimenting with? As I said, I'm being as open-minded as possible, so I'm experimenting with both synthetic dyes and natural dyes. First up, I dyed some organic double-knit jersey, a wine colour, using Dylon washing machine dye. This is a reactive dye, which means that during the dyeing process, the fibre and the dye react to create a new molecule. This means the result is pretty wash fast, which minimises the amount of dye that gets washed down the drain. Reactive dyes involve using salt or soda ash to help set the dye, and there can be issues with pouring too much residue salt down the drains. As long as I'm only dyeing fabric once in a blue moon, it's probably not much of an issue, particularly as I am based in a city that has an urban drainage system, which means the salt I put down my drain will get well diluted, reducing its concentration well below toxic levels before it even reaches the water treatment plant. I was relatively happy with the colour I achieved. It was quite a muted shade of wine, probably more like the flesh of an autumn raspberry than the deep complex colour of, say, a Gigondas or a Barbera wine. I could probably have achieved a more interesting colour with Procyon reactive dyes, as these colours can be mixed, whereas Dylon comes in a range of pre-mixed colours. I know that Procyon dyes are quite commonly used in the US. Although we can buy them here, they are less well suited to the occasional home dyer in Europe. This particular dye requires soda ash as a fixer and it needs to be added at various stages. This is not a problem if you have a top-loading washing machine, but in Europe most washing machines are front-loaders and depending on the make and model, you would have to interrupt the washing cycle several times, drain it completely, add the soda ash and then refill the water. This makes the whole dyeing process very water intensive, so it's possibly not the most ideal solution. I will probably continue working with Dylon washing machine dyes for some things. I think certainly in the immediate future I would use it to dye jersey where necessary, um, particularly the thick double knit jersey or the interlock jersey as I suspect it would take me quite a lot of practice to get good even results with natural dyes on this fabric. 
Most of my experimentation has involved natural dyeing in an effort to produce the kind of colours that I can't achieve with Dylon, and especially the kind of earthy shades. Once again, I think it's very important to stress that natural dyeing is not an environmentally neutral process. Based on my experience of dyeing wool, I know it's a much more water-intensive process than, for example, using acid dyes to dye wool. In order to get a good colour, the dye to fabric ratio is relatively high and as the dye matter is not entirely absorbed by the fabric the way you have with acid dyes or integrated in the fabric the way you would have with reactive dyes, there is usually an ex excess amount of dye that needs to be rinsed out. Then there is the mordanting. Mordanting is a process of preparing the fabric to help the dye bite onto the wool or the fabric and it involves naturally occurring chemicals, typically an alum. In acid and reactive dyeing, there is no mordanting, but naturally occurring chemicals are used to help set the dye, like citric acid or salt or soda ash. While natural dyeing is water intensive and involves the use of mordanting chemicals, there are things that we can do to minimise the amount of mordants we need to use or reduce water wastage and maximise dye baths. Naturally dyeing plant-based fibres like cottons is generally considered more difficult than dyeing wool. This is partly because the traditional mordanting process is more involved and partly because the same dye matter will usually produce a more subtle, less flamboyant colour on cotton than wool. As flamboyant is not really a word I associate with my personality or aesthetic, this didn't really worry me. I was just curious to know if it was feasible to achieve the subtle rust, copper and russet shades I love so much on cottons, and if so, whether it's worth the effort to dye several metres of the fabric at a time. Because of my specific aims, I was happy to limit this first focused study to two dye materials, madder and kutch. Madder or Rubia tinctorum is a traditional dye plant which grows quite happily in the UK, although it will take me three years before I can start to harvest the roots of my own dye plant. I love the tones that I achieve with Madder on wool and I'm really eager to know what range of colours I can produce on cotton. I chose Cooch as the other dye material. This is also known as Acacia catechu, and it's a bark from a tree, and it is a multi-purpose material. Kutch is a substantive dye, which means it does not need a mordant to bond to the fibre, and it is particularly attracted to cotton. The fact that it doesn't require a mordant is very attractive for somebody who's trying to minimise the amount of chemicals involved in the dyeing process. I had a fairly good idea of what type of, sort of colours I could achieve with Kutch because I've added scraps of cotton to wool dye baths in the past and I particularly like the earthy rust colour it produces and the variations I can achieve with modifiers. Importantly Kutch can also be used as part of a three-step mordanting process for cotton and linen. Traditionally cotton was mordanted by soaking it in one tannin bath and then in two subsequent baths of potassium alum. Kutch is one of the materials that can be used for the tannin bath. Another advantage to Cooch is that it's a very efficient dye material. A little really does go a long way, which means the same dye bath and water can be used again and again. 
Another thing that I really like about Cooch is that you don't need to heat the dye bath. You simply leave the fabric or fibre in the bath for anything from 18 to 48 hours and just let it do its thing. So I dissolved some Cooch in boiling water and then poured it into a big pan and steeped successive batches of cotton fabric in that pan. As this was an experiment and resource efficiency is very much the name of the game around here, I foraged the fabric from some of my husband's old work shirts. Mr M tends to wear white shirts for work and whilst they are made of good quality cotton, after a while the cuffs and collars do perish, so they are the perfect material for dyeing experiments. I moved some of the fabric that I dyed in Cooch onto a pan that contained a mortenting solution of potassium alum and cream of tartar. I brought this pan up to a simmer and left it there for an hour or so and then repeated the process topping up the chemicals. I then dyed these mordanted panels in a madder bath. I also included a spoon of washing soda and one of glauber salts in the madder solution. The soda makes the water more alkaline and enhances the pinky-red undertones in the dye, while the glauber salts encourage an even uptake of the dye. When working with madder, it's very important to heat the dye bath slowly to a simmering point and not to allow it to boil. If it boils, the reddish pigments tend to be dulled into a brown colour. I left the fabric at that just below simmering point for about an hour and then I turned the pan off so the fabric could cool and cure in the dye overnight. Some of the fabrics I just left dyed in cooch or dyed in madder. I rinsed them, spun them and then hung them up to dry. Other pieces of the cotton I popped into modifiers. I like using certain assists or modifiers as they can change the colour slightly. I popped some of the kutch dyed and the madder dyed fabric into separate bowls and then I added a solution of dissolved washing soda. This alkaline solution changed the kutch dyed fabric into a muted pink and the madder dyed fabric went from a brick red to an almost auburn blush red. I used a splash of iron sulphate to modify a couple of other pieces of fabric. You can buy iron sulphate in powder form or you can make it yourself by steeping rusty nails in a citric acid solution for several weeks. I placed a piece of kutch dyed fabric in a bowl and covered it with about an inch of water, just enough to cover it entirely. Then I added about a table, maybe two tablespoons of the iron sulphate mixture. Iron sulphate tends to work pretty quickly and within seconds it turned the kutch dyed fabric into a warm grey. I left the kutch fabric in the iron sulphate for a couple of minutes just to get the depth of colour I wanted and then I removed it and rinsed it. After that I placed the madder dyed fabric in the same bowl. This changed colours much more slowly. I suspect it was partly due to the fact that most of the iron sulphate had been depleted by the kutch fabric, but also possibly that the chemical reaction between madder and iron sulphate may just take a little bit longer. So I left that one in for about 15 minutes until it was quite a deepy rusty red with maroon undertones. I then rinsed everything, spun them and hung them to dry. I'm not sure how the chemistry of these modifiers work, but there is something about them that definitely helps make the colours more wash fast. I noticed when I was rinsing the fabrics that I'd modified either with 
washing soda or iron sulfate that I needed much less water to rinse them clear. To minimise the residual chemicals that I pour down the train, I make a point of reusing the iron sulfate several times, storing it if necessary between uses. Each time it's used, it becomes less concentrated and the colour fades as the iron sulphate is depleted. All that ultimately remains is a water with a madder or kutch coloured residue and this I could pour down the sink. I don't tend to keep the washing soda modifier solution. It's quite a weak solution and there's no problem in my area of disposing of that down the normal drains. If of course you fancy trying your hand with any of these modifiers, you will have to do a little bit of research about what is and isn't permitted in your area. And if you have a septic tank or a grey water system, these modifiers may or may not be appropriate for you. I guess what you probably really want to know is what were the results. I need to practice achieving even results more. I suspect I will need more regular stirring, possibly larger pots, and maybe a little bit more glauber salts. But that said, as you can probably tell from the adjectives I use to describe the colours, I am delighted with them. I suspect some people would look at the samples from this experiment and just describe them as rusts or earthy reds. As most of my wardrobe is based on natural browns, natural stones and taupes, I think these coppery pinks and russety reds will provide very subtle but interesting dashes of colour and will actually help bring out the gorgeousness of the natural shades. Kutch and Madder are both difficult dye bars to deplete. I therefore tossed in some scraps of linen at the end of the process. I had a pair of naturally coloured linen trousers that had worn through on the inside legs so I scavenged panels of fabric from them. Linen is supposed to be even harder to dye than cotton due to the tough fibres and obviously I was working with quite weak dye bars at this point. But that said, I am absolutely smitten with the colours I achieved on linen. It's almost as if the slightly rougher texture of linen emphasises the subtleties in the colours. I carried out this Kuchum Matter dye experiment on foraged scraps as the aim was very much to understand the process better and understand what I can achieve with these different materials. But my dyed samples are far too lovely not to use. I plan to use some of the cotton for book cloth in book binding and I think I'll try and incorporate the rest in a quilt. The dyed linen is almost too interesting to cut into smaller pieces so I intend to turn them into placemats. We have a set of placemats that is definitely worse for wear and rather than go out and buy a new set I thought I might as well take these panels of dyed linen and with the help of some organic cotton and embroidery silks turn them into placemats with some hand stitching. Once I've mastered a couple of top patterns I will definitely be dyeing up some cotton lawn in natural dyes. I'm very much at the start of my dyeing journey. Learning about different types of dyes and their environmental implications is a big undertaking, as is developing hands-on know-how about how natural dyes work. For natural dyeing, I have mostly been using books by Jenny Dean and Ethel Mayritz's Vegetable Dyes and various blog posts. A lot of the resources I have found focus 
on wool with dyeing cotton and linen addressed almost as an aside. I therefore wanted to ask whether anyone can recommend good resources that focus specifically on dyeing plant-based fibres. I am particularly interested in resources that deal with traditional mordants and plants that grow well in Europe. I would love to hear if anyone has recommendations about books or blog posts or even good local guild sources. And if it helps, recommendations don't need to be limited to English. I'm very happy to try and access materials in French or German or even Russian or Swedish at a push. Natural dyeing is such a slow process that I don't mind slowing it down even further by dusting off my rusty languages, particularly if it allows me to tap into and help preserve old know-how and skills. And as a little light relief, I thought I would take you on a little tour around some of the edibles in my kitchen garden. Kitchen garden sounds rather grandiose. It's actually a small urban garden, or rather a patio with delusions of grandeur. But I very much like to bring the spirit of a kitchen garden into this tiny space. As I mentioned earlier, for me there are many analogies between my attitude to wool and food. In the same way that I aim to source wools locally, I also focus on local seasonal vegetables, and that includes growing as many of my own as I can squeeze into my tiny garden. Even though my vegetable growing space is minute, I like to grow a range of heritage vegetables and herbs. These often have more interesting flavours than the varieties we can find in the supermarkets, which are obviously selected based on the retailer's convenience rather than taste. Also by growing a range and some unusual or rather old school edibles, it's possible to stretch the season or eke more food out of my tiny space. For example, novice vegetable growers quickly learn about earlier main crop potatoes or spring and winter cabbages. But if you leaf through the catalogue of a company that sells heritage variety seeds, you will often find vegetables and herbs that have different cropping times or that may be suitable for a northerly climate or shadier growing conditions. As British summer is a bit of a joke and my garden is quite dark, I am growing a variety of tomato and peppers like legend bush tomato and lipstick early sweet pepper that are particularly suited to northern climates where the sunny season is ridiculously short. Similarly, as space is at a premium in my garden, I favour older variety of plants that have not been modified for mechanical harvesting. For example, I grow a pea variety called Champion of England, which is a very tall climbing pea that will reach up to six or eight feet. I don't get a vast crop because of limited space, but I do have the pleasure of a few risottos with homegrown peas and mints, and in particular at a time of the year when there's very little else in the garden. I really value the morale boost I get from harvesting something from the garden on a daily basis, even if it's just a handful of leaves that add flavour when there is little else available. I am therefore increasingly adding perennial edibles or traditional herbs that will help add flavour in the colder months or replace more familiar crops that struggle in my garden. This year I have added the following to my kitchen garden. The first is Salad Burnett also known as Sanguisorba minor. 
This is a perennial herb that takes about 70 to 100 days to establish, but you can start to harvest the leaves as soon as the herb is about four inches tall. The leaves add a fresh cucumber-like fragrance to salads or soups or stews. They work particularly well in a potato salad, I find. And it's a kind of herb that is very useful if, like me, you live in a region where cucumbers have a relatively short, late growing season. The next addition to my kitchen garden is a classic, which you would rarely see in a grocery shop. It's a herb hyssop, or Hyssopus officinalis. The reference to officinalis means that this herb was traditionally used for medicinal purposes. In particular, it was used as an expectorant due to the strong flavour. The herb was originally from the Mediterranean, but it thrives quite happily further north, much like rosemary or lavender. And it's not massively fussy about the soil that it goes in. Taste-wise, it has a strong flavour akin to rosemary, and it works well in soups or stuffings. Or if you eat fish, it goes very well with oily fish. Like rosemary, it can become a bit woody at its base, but between its aroma and its woodiness, it's actually quite a useful edging plant in the kitchen garden because it can help deter slugs and snails. It's not a complete deterrent against slugs and snails, but from what I understand, it can create a barrier that protects more delicate leaves from the little swines. I'm not at that stage yet. I'm still trying to get my first plant established, but once it is, I will definitely be taking cuttings and produce more to create an edging. And as hyssop produces a pretty blue flower that is attractive to bees, it would be a rather beautiful slug deterrent. The final recent addition is an edible wildflower that goes by the wonderful name of Bladder Campion or Maiden Tears. The Latin name is Cellini vulgaris. It's a native European wildflower, but from what I understand, it's also prolific in North America. The plant has rather attractive pinky lilac flowers, but it's the leaves that are the real treat. They can be harvested and wilted much like spinach, which really struggles in my garden. So instead I grow a range of green leaves like chard sorrel and now bladder campion. I like wilting it on pasta or risotto dishes or chopping it in with other greens to make a spinach-like pie. I grew these three additions from seed on my windowsill and I used seeds from the Real Seed Company. This is a fabulous seed merchant. It is one of those companies that really adds value. It doesn't just sell seeds, it is actively helping to create seed diversity by finding old variety vegetables, trialling them and then building up seed stock. And it very much views its customers as active participants in that process. When you receive packets of seeds from this company, they include seed saving tips and advice. I also like the fact that the company offers a two-tier postage pricing system. It asks that those customers who can cover the full costs of UK postage do, but also offers a discounted postage rate for customers who are in straitened circumstances. This may only be a small token, but it reinforces the idea that growing some of your own food is almost a democratic right. It's an activity that should be available to all, regardless of means. You can find this company at www.realseeds.co.uk and I will include a link in the show notes. As there are strict rules that govern cross-border seed selling, 
the real seed company is upfront about which countries it can and can't deliver to. I think at the moment it can post to Ireland, France, and I believe also Spain. But as it focuses so heavily on building up seed diversity and encouraging vegetable growing, its site includes recommendations of seed merchants in other countries that have similar aims. I imagine that there are probably some gardeners amongst the listeners who are cultivating a kitchen garden, medicinal garden or dyer's garden, no matter how small. I would love it if you could share where you source seeds from and if you can recommend any seed companies in your region or country that are also working to build up seed diversity. I view such seed companies much in the same way as I do sheep farmers who are working to preserve heritage breeds or independent mills that are keeping local skills and know-how alive. In my eyes, they are all champions and they deserve as much support as we can offer them. On that note, and after a bumper-sized episode, I think I will call it a day. I wish you lots of enjoyment in your making and maybe some seasonal material inspiration in the run-up to the summer or winter solstice. So till next time, happy making.